Chapter 5, two weeks ago, we started the message in verses 7 and 8 entitled, Children of Light. We looked at the negative side of that in verse 7, Be ye not therefore partakers with them. Paul gave six vices, fornication, all uncleanness, or covetousness, which is not to be once named among you as becoming saints. And then three categories of our speech that are connected, we saw, with sensuality. Filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting, which are not uh, convenient, but rather giving of thanks. And then we saw two reasons why we should not be partakers. Because people whose identity is a fornicator, an unclean person, a covetous man, a transgender, and all the things that would fit in those categories, if this is their identity unchanged, they will not inherit the kingdom of God and the wrath of God is upon them. Therefore, church, don't be a partaker with them. Very clear what Paul is saying there. Well, now he turns in a positive direction, and he's going to tell us what the children of light are about. And he's going to give us two categories, proving what is acceptable, and then he's going to use the word reproving what is unacceptable, and tell us not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So I'm going to look at those two categories under these three headings. First, children of light are light in the Lord. Secondly, children of light should leave on the light. And thirdly, children of light should let the light do its work. Let the light do its work. So number one is in verse 8. For ye were sometimes darkness, now ye light in the Lord, walk as children of light. Verse 10 Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. So Paul gives us a parenthesis and a participle. The participle proving connects us back to the imperative mood of being children of light. The parenthesis was added to bridge the gap and to give some illumination with regard to being light in the Lord and what it means to prove what is acceptable unto the Lord. So set the parenthesis aside for a moment and let's look at Proving what is acceptable. Acceptable means well-pleasing to God. So we should be able to think in terms of, you can please Jehovah God. Now there was a time when you couldn't. That's when you were in darkness. But now as light in the Lord, you have the capacity, you have the ability to please God. You're no longer totally depraved. You are a sinner. Saved by grace. You have the Holy Spirit abiding in you. Therefore, you can please God. Now, sometimes as Christians, we don't think that way. We think, I can never please God. There's nothing I can do to please God. When, in fact, there is. Because we can prove what is acceptable or well-pleasing to God. David, in Psalm 19, prayed, Let the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable, be pleasing to you, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Now, that's a... That's a wasted time of prayer if it wasn't possible for David's words and meditations to be acceptable or well-pleasing to God. Or in the New Testament, Paul would pray for the church of Colossae that you would walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Now again, Paul, that's a wasted prayer if it's not possible for the Christian, the believer, to actually live in some way in a manner that actually 
pleases God. So we should ask the question then, what is it that pleases God? And we're going to connect that with our first point. You're pleasing to God when you're walking as light in Jesus. In the Lord. That means two things. Christ must be the source of everything you are. Or you don't please God. He must be the source of every piece of fruit hanging on the branch. No matter how many is there. Or we can't walk pleasing to the Lord. That's why Paul says walk as light in Jesus, in the Lord. That's why he says in Ephesians 2.10, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So to walk as children of light is to walk in the Lord. We've been created in Christ so that the fruit or the good works can only please God when you're in Christ. If you're out of Christ, nothing you do, no matter how good it appears, can please God. Even the plowing of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That's a good thing. To you and me it is, but not to God, because it's outside of God. It's not united. It's not sourced in God. He's not plowing in hope and in faith. He's just plowing in his own strength. And by himself. Paul would say in Colossians 2.6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk ye in him. Rooted and being built up. Rooted is a, a perfect tense. Which means having been rooted. Now you're being built. How do you walk in the light? How do you walk in Jesus? You're rooted. And your building is still rooted. So that everything that happens on the plant, on the tree, on the vine, is because you're rooted. If you're severed from the root, then you're the source of your own fruit, your own supposed goodness. That's not acceptable to God. That doesn't please Him. See, we're light in the Lord only when we're walking by faith in the Lord. And that's the instrument God ordained To connect us to Christ in such a way that we can actually live and be built up, having been rooted and stable in the faith as you've been taught, abounding there with thanksgiving. That's back in Colossians 2.6. Now when you're abounding in thanksgiving, that's just an indication that somebody is doing a lot for you, right? You're just a recipient of somebody's goodness. You're a recipient of somebody's grace. And we know that's Christ because you're rooted, grounded, being built up. And thanksgiving is the outflow of a heart whose source in everything he or she is, is Christ alone. We cannot please Christ. We cannot please God. We cannot prove what is acceptable unless we're in the Lord by faith and walking by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you that you might be rooted, that He might be source for everything. Because without faith it's impossible to please God. It cannot be done. Secondly, You're living as light in the Lord. You're pleasing God, not only when Christ is source, but when Christ is satisfier. That's very important. 
Is Christ your ultimate satisfier? I say ultimate because there are certainly experiences we have that are from Jesus that include relationships and experiences in creation that are satisfying. They're enjoyable. So we use the word ultimate. Is Christ your ultimate satisfier? If he's sourced by faith, he'll be ultimate satisfier. Listen to Paul when he uses the word please in relation to the gospel and not being a men pleaser, but a a pleaser of God. To Thessalonica chapter 2 verse 3. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But, as we were allowed to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God. Implied, He speaks to please God, who tries our hearts. Now Paul, if you're not a men pleaser, and you're pleasing God, you're doing what is acceptable to God... With your words, what does that mean? Well, he tells us. Verse 5. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor men sought we glory. He gives three examples of what it means that he's not a men pleaser because he doesn't use flattery. He's not cloaked in covetousness and he's not seeking glory. Now suppose for a minute he did. Suppose Paul is using words... Not to be a God-pleaser or what's acceptable to the Lord when he preaches, but to be a men-pleaser. What would that look like? First, he would use flattering words to satisfy his desire for your approval. That's why you and I flatter people. Number two, he would cloak his words in covetousness to satisfy his desire for gain. Namely, probably, money. That's why some men preach. Number three, he would satisfy his desire for praise by cloaking his words in seeking the glory of men. He would be a glory seeker, not a God seeker. And the whole point is he wants to satisfy his desire for the praise and the applause of man. Now Paul says, I'm not pleasing men with my words, so I'm not doing that. All right, now, Paul, what does it mean that you're a God-pleaser? It means that Paul's words are spoken from a heart that is being satisfied with all that God is. Therefore, he doesn't need what? He doesn't need your approval. He doesn't need your money. And he doesn't need your praise. You know why? He has Christ as the satisfier. And that pleases God. Anything else, beloved, is idolatry. If we're walking as light in the Lord, Christ is the source, but Christ is the satisfier. For God will be nothing else. Or He's not God to you. Is that too extreme? I don't think so. Because when you come by faith to God, believing that He is, you're believing that you're not. And you're believing that He's all, source and satisfier. So you are diligently seeking God as the reward. He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek the money, the praise. No, God. 
Is God the source of what you are? And is He the satisfier? Ultimately, you see Him that way. Even when days when He wasn't, and you acknowledge it. Those days when He wasn't source, and you repent. You come back and say, you are all. Like we saw last week with Asa. When he recovered in the sanctuary, he, he wasn't thinking this way. Who do I have in heaven but Thee? And there is none on earth I desire but Thee. My heart and my flesh faileth, but God is my strength and my portion forever. What's he saying? God, your source. God, your satisfier. And if I could just illustrate what God's face would look like when Asaph said that. Just my take on the Bible. God has a big smile on his face because that gives him pleasure. Because he's all. And that's what he is, isn't it? That's not false. God's not trying to be something he's not. He, in fact, is source and satisfier. So whatever proving what is acceptable unto the Lord is, we, we can't get to first base until we're light in the Lord. And Jesus is becoming that for you. He's becoming that because we're, we haven't arrived, have we? He is becoming that as our light. Secondly, leave the light on. Leave the light on. There was an advertising slogan years ago from a motel chain on the radio. And this man would come on with a very unique voice. It was really kind of drawing and appealing. And at the end of the advertisement for the motel chain, he would say... We'll leave the light on for you. I mean, that, that, there are still slogans used today based on that slogan. You know, we'll keep the air on for you, someone says in their advertisement. What that means is if you arrive at midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., whatever the time, the light will be on. How many times as Christians we turn the light off? Now, I'm going to assume it's on today, right? You got the light on today for about an hour or two. You leave here and Monday through Saturday, the light goes off. If you walk as light in the Lord, this is a 24-7 thing. It's not a Sunday experience. So if we're proving what is acceptable, we're, we're walking in the Lord, but now we're leaving the light on because proving is a part of us, but something we do all the time. It's something God calls us to. We know Christianity is something that God tells us to be as an identity, not as something we kind of attach to ourselves one day a week or a few days of the week, but it's, it's the outflow of who we are. That is, in fact, who I am in Christ. And when I live within this identity, then that's going to help me prove what is acceptable unto the Lord. Now, if we're leaving the light on, we're proving, and what does that mean? Well, the word proving is the word dokimazo for testing. Testing, to examine, to scrutinize, to test something, but it always has the, the idea of recognizing something as genuine or approving it as fit as a result of the testing. So it's never just testing. It's always seeing something, recognizing something after you do 
the testing. All right. We, we know we've seen this word in Romans 12 too, where it says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test or prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So transformation is prerequisite and necessary before you can see something. Now, it doesn't mean test the will of God and examine it and say, I just want to see if this is right. We can test the spirits whether they are of God. Is what that man's saying to me right? But once we see it, it's not saying, I wonder if that's right or wrong. For example, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Now, wait a minute. Mom just commanded me to do something. Dad just commanded me to do something. I, I need to test that. I'm not sure if commanding children is right. Oh, yes, it is. Children, obey your parents in the Lord in all things. This is right. That's not the testing. See, the kind of test we need to do is the kind of transformation that sees the command as good, pleasing, nothing missing to the Lord. Now, it'll be hard sometimes to see it as good from dad and good from mom and pleasing and acceptable because they may not say it just right. They may have a scowl on their face sometime and smoke is coming out of the nose. No, it, it's, it's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect, because God said it. So I'm not testing to see, should I do this? I need to see it and recognize it and approve it as good. But in our context, the will of God is not there in the sense of those words, not even the Word of God. In the immediate context, we know that we prove what is acceptable by the Word and by what God has said in His Word. But this takes it a step beyond that. Because right here in the context, that's not mentioned. Now that's the foundation. But what is Paul talking about? Now this is where the parenthesis is going to help us. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, proving, participle, what is acceptable. These clusters of fruit are three concrete expressions of what is pleasing to God. See? We know He has to be source. We know that Christ is a satisfier. But now here are three concrete expressions at the street level. The heart level is source and satisfier. The street level is now out of that, out of Christ as source, out of Christ as satisfier. You are bearing the fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. Proving. You see the connection. I think Paul threw that parenthesis in to kind of bridge the gap between verse 8 and verse 10. Proving. In Galatians 5, he gives us a different list of fruit and says, walking in the Spirit. Now, how are you going to know if you're walking in step with the Spirit of God? Some people draw some interesting conclusions as to whether the Spirit is present or not. Sometimes they're based on experience. Sometimes they just go to the gifts of the Spirit. If you've got the gifts, then He's present. Well, what about the fruit of the Spirit in your life? There's your most solid assessment of whether your steps are walking in tandem with the Spirit's steps, or you need to bring your footsteps back in line with His. Right? Now, how do you do that? When I was young, my parents at times would go to the farmer's market or maybe to a farmer's land where there were crops and they would pick produce or fruit. And they would always talk about how many bushels to get. 
Boy, that threw me off for a while. Bush, what's a bushel and a peck? Well, a bushel is a dry measurement of volume, 32 quarts. Now, the thing about a bushel, it's not measured by weight. So you can't pick it up and feel. I got a bushel here. It's observable with your eyes. If there's a level that says when you reach this level, it's a bushel, then you can see you've got a bushel, like a cup in your home. A cup is a dry volume of measurement. You know a cup of coconut weighs different than a cup of sugar. But when they come to the brim and you see it and you take that knife and go, you have a cup. It's observable with your eyes. That's how you know you're walking in the Spirit. You actually observe the fruit, the clusters, in some degree, in your life. Or how else would we know? So let's look at the clusters here, and then we'll try to draw the connection of how this is leaving the light on. on. And what does it mean, proving? How are we pro- what are we proving acceptable to the Lord? First, goodness. It means it's active goodness. It means to be useful, to be helpful, to be generous. Now, if you're walking in the Spirit, you have a disposition to be helpful, useful. What that means is, no one has to tell you to help clean the kitchen. I, I, I get it. I need prodding sometimes. In fact, I appreciate it. Did you know there are dishes that need to be... Oh, yes, yeah, thank you. I don't mean to present myself as always that cooperative, but you get the point. It's okay to prod, but if you're walking in the Spirit, you just kind of are disposed to being useful and helpful. Why? Because you're walking in the Spirit. <clears throat> you don't need to be told to take out the trash. Now, do I need to be told to take out the trash? Yes, at times I do. But it's overflowing. You, you just take it out. Why do you do that? You're walking in the Spirit. And that goes for cleaning your room or helping out in any way at home. All right, when... You, You come home from work, you don't have to be told by your wife to be useful with the children and to be useful in the kitchen. Now, it's okay to be reminded, and and that's, that's fine, but if you're walking in the Spirit and your steps are in line with the Spirit, you have a disposition for goodness. You want to be useful and helpful. Therefore, you maybe do something radical, man. You'd say, honey, can I help you do anything? I know I'm taking notes of how much change I need. But this is what God is saying to me, and this is what He's saying to you. See, it won't do to be tired, because you're walking in step with the Spirit. And then there's all these people in this room, right? How could you be useful to these people? Or at the church, you know? To be helpful. I'd ask a deacon, is there anything I could do at the church building? Is anything needs to be done? I know you guys do a lot. Now, why would you do that? Because you have a disposition. You're leaning and you want to do what is good and useful and generous because you're walking in the Spirit. Again, it's okay to be prodded. I like it when people tell me and that's all part of it. Walking in the Spirit is goodness, and it's goodness in Galatians 5. And it's generosity. Maybe that means that you're not just looking to be generous with the bare minimum of what you need to give to the church. You you want to be generous, even beyond that, and use your resources for the glory of God. Now, why would you do that? 
Because you're walking. Because the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness. See, just like sunlight is needed to produce energy called photosynthesis in the plant, or there's no fruit on the tree, you need the Spirit who brings the light of Christ to you in order to bear fruit on the tree called goodness, useful, helpful, generous. Now, if that stings, and it does, what's the Spirit telling you? He's saying, come back alongside me. We're going to walk together in the Spirit. I'm going to take you to Christ as the source and as the satisfier. And you watch. There'll be some fruit. You can be useful. Now, don't wait for the... Well, that means I'm, I'm going I'm to walk around all week and wait for this source feeling, this satisfying feeling. Nope. Just go to work. Looking to Christ. See? Don't wait for some mystical experience. See, it's just kind of mundane. See? Can I take out the trash and be filled with the Spirit? Yes, you can. Can I take out the trash and not be filled with the Spirit? Yes, you can. And believers do it all the time. Right? And we're connecting it with Christ. Because we're light in the Lord as the source. Then we don't want to do it just because this is the the most fun job. Especially when it's zero degrees outside and you have to cart the the, the whole two, two, we've got two at our house, all the way to the street and you're freezing. That's not fun. For the Lord's sake, I, I want to be disposed to that which is useful and that which is good. All right, so... We're looking at the bushel, and the only way to tell if there's a bushel there is you look at the mark and you just ask, is that anything close to what's happening in your life? So God is calling you to be light and to repent, and He's calling me too. This is how, this is how God works, right? Number two, righteousness. Righteousness here is not imputed righteousness, which is by faith that we have a new position, we're right with God, but this means upright behavior. Upright behavior. Well, now, when you were darkness, you had bent over behavior and you were curved and bent into yourself. Your whole life was preoccupied through the week with doing exactly what you wanted to do. That's to be bent. Now, as light in the Lord, when the light is on, you're upright, you're looking forward, and now you're seeing the needs of other people. See, all this fruit relates to other people. It's, it's, it's toward your neighbor. So you couldn't see them before because it's like being on your phone all day, you know. I didn't even know you existed. I'm not condemning phones. You get the illustration. But now when you look up and you're upright, there's a virtue and integrity that starts to work out of your life where now Philippians 2.4 says, Look not every man on his own things, but also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So if we have the Spirit of Christ, and we're trying to have the mind of Christ, that means you're not just looking on your own things. Yes, you must, to some degree, right? I mean, if, if you started going and repairing everybody's house in the community and mowing their grass, what happens to your grass? What's wrong with this guy? Can't he cut his grass? No, you have to look on your own things, but also on the things of others. That's upright behavior. Now you're looking out and you're looking to others. Now why would you do that? Because you're walking in the Spirit. This is the fruit the Spirit produces. He does not produce the, the, the fruit of self-serving selfishness. 
we do that on our own, don't we? I am very well adapted to being selfish, and I don't need anybody's help. That's just my default mode. But if I'm ever to be upright, where I can see others and think about others' needs and not my own, I have to have the Spirit of God. I have to have the fruit that comes from being rooted, grounded in Jesus. Right? So, look at the cup. And is there any fruit of upright behavior toward others in your cup? If there's not, you're not going to be able to prove what is acceptable. And so God is calling us now to be active in goodness and be active in righteousness. And now, truth. Truth is not truth in the sense of this is a true statement, this is false. It speaks of a wholeness. A truth in life that is free from falsehood and deceit. It's free from fakeness. To bear the spirit of truth is to be a whole person. It's to be undivided. It's, it's to be without insincerity. It's to be not like a hypocrite. In other words, what's going on on the outside on Sunday is, is kind of what's going on on the inside. Now, we're sinners, so there are times when they cannot equate. But the fruit of the Spirit is not duplicity. It's not being one thing on Sunday and something the rest of the week. That's not from the Spirit of God at all. It's wholeness. It's truth. That's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. Now get the picture. There's no truth inside him, but on the outside, he acts like he's a person of truth, doesn't he? In fact, he'll say true things. He'll speak true things. But he's a deceiver because inwardly, There's no truth, even though outwardly he comes in the form of Pharisees. And Pharisees look like true men, don't they? In fact, they look like the best of the best. You are just like your father the devil. So Jesus is addressing men that are not true. They're not whole. They're divided. Now they look true. Outwardly they appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones, Jesus said. That's not a true man. That's not a true person. Now what were the Pharisees about? Their whole question was, how can these people meet my needs? Does that describe you? How can the church meet my needs? What can those people do for me? That's all they were about. And they were covered over with an appearance of righteousness. So they use the Bible to meet their own personal selfish needs. They use people. They use religion. They used everything because they weren't true people. Now, if your steps are coming in line with the Spirit of God and you're, you're a person of truth, that's the new man who's created in righteousness and all true holiness. Righteousness and truth are often together in the Bible. That means you're, you're asking, how can I meet the needs of others? Right? Yes, we, we have needs that are mutually met. That, that's, that's not in question here. But a true person living in the light of Christ, whose light in the Lord, who's leaving the light on, is a person who is bearing the fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. They're, they're true. And so all of these clusters are 
moving out towards people and not moving in towards self. Now look at the counterpart. Why does Paul just give three? Probably to counter the three vices. Whose supposed needs are being met in the three vices? Fornication, uncleanness, or covetousness? What is that? Trying to satisfy your selfish desires with people. Objectifying them. What's the counterpart? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Going out to people. Because you have a source and a satisfier whose name is Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Alright. These three concrete expressions are connecting with proving. How do we prove? The lawyer examines the witness to discover the truth. The teacher tests the student to discover what is known. The Christian tests what? That is pleasing to the Lord. What is it? Well, it's related to the fruit. In other words, how many possible occasions do you have in a week to do good? More than you could possibly ever do if you're looking and recognizing and proving and discerning. Listen to Charles Haddon Spurgeon on this verse. He says, Let us be on the watch for opportunities of usefulness. Let us go about the world with our ears and eyes open, ready to avail ourselves of every occasion for doing good. Let us not be content till we are useful, but make this the main design and ambition of our lives. Every occasion. Now here's where discerning comes in. You can't possibly, on every occasion, meet the needs or go out to some other person. You need to test it and to see it and to recognize what is acceptable. Based on the Word of God, as we read and we're transformed, we're asking the Lord, Lord, how can I best optimize these five different occasions where people have need? If you meet that in a week. How many people in here could you meet the needs of? How many people in the community? How many people at work? How many people in your family? You're only one person with so much time and so many resources. So to have goodness, righteousness, and truth is to discern with these concrete expressions of what pleases God how to prioritize and how to go about looking and seeing. See, we're not just stumbling upon opportunities to do good. We are looking. We are discerning, we're recognized, we're proving what is acceptable to the Lord. So we're leaving the light on, and light helps us to see, and to know, and to ask, and to be ready. And then on any given occasion, the Lord will lead you how to maximize His glory to meet the needs of another. When there may be ten people that all have needs, right? I think that's why Paul gives us the parenthesis leading to the participle. is saying this fruit becomes the basis of discerning. And we're looking as light and looking for the opportunities. We're asking God, Lord, show us which of a, of a hundred different people that you could come across. Maybe that's more than would be likely, but more than one. You're just one person. Now, transformation helps you to discern. Only when you're leaving the light on. You're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And then thirdly, and this will be our last point we dig into, 
Let the light do its work. Now Paul transitions in verse 11 with these words. And having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. What is the work of light? Light always exposes things. You know that. When you get dressed under the fluorescent light, then you go in the sunlight, look in the mirror, you're like, ah, what happened? That's not the color I saw. I've told the story, I know here multiple times, but it fits. I'll tell it again. time I showed up for a deacon's meeting up in um, Maryland, and I had gotten dressed in the dark. It was early in the morning, went to the church, and we all wanted to have prayer. <laughs> and so we all got in a circle. We all looked down to pray and said, Brother Mike, why have you got two different shoes on? It's like, what? Because I got dressed in the dark. I was feeling my way around. See? But as soon as I came into the light... It was exposed, what was really there. When light does its work, and you are the light, light begins to expose, rather than what? Have fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. Beloved, I think Paul is addressing some Christians who were being pulled back into the darkness. People that love Jesus, and people that got too friendly with darkness. And Paul says, that's not what light does. Now, what are fruitful works then? Paul says, being fruitful in every good work in Colossians 1.10. So we don't want to be unfruitful in works. We want to be fruitful. To be unfruitful means useless, worthless, and not acceptable in the sight of the Lord. That stays with our context. If we're proving what is acceptable... Unfruitful works are any works, those that are done in darkness, like the vices Paul gives, and in any works that Christ is not source and Christ is not satisfier. In other words, they're not done in faith. That's an unfruitful work. What is a fruitful work then? A fruitful work is done for the revelation of God's glory, Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine that others may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So a fruitful work that Paul prays for at Colossae is a work that reveals God. Secondly, it's a work that reaches out to others. Right? Titus 3.8, These things, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Why? For these are good and profitable to men. So they reveal God's glory and then they reach out to others, but then they are rooted in the knowledge of Christ. 2 Peter 1, 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in what? The knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge of what? Christ is source. Christ is satisfier. You're unfruitful when you don't know Jesus as you should. The unfruitful works of darkness, they don't know Christ. Either they've never known Him or the Christian has forgotten something. Verse 9, 2 Peter 1. He that lacketh these things is blind, he's nearsighted, and he's forgotten that he was purged. Now if you're blind, you're what? You're in darkness. You're in darkness. You've forgotten something. 
And no Christian ever forgets they're purged. You could ask a Christian that's straying from the Lord, do you think you're forgiven? Yeah, I'm forgiven in Christ. I think what Peter means is you've forgotten the reason you were cleansed and given a pure heart. Was it not that you would see or know Christ? You're not knowing Jesus as source and satisfier. Therefore, the darkness is encroaching. And then your works are going to be unfruitful works. They don't reveal God. They don't reach out to others. They're reaching into self. And they're not rooted in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not rooted in Him. Fellowship. How can light have fellowship with darkness? We heard that scripture reading this morning. What communion have light with darkness? Have you ever noticed when the sun comes up, slowly, the darkness slowly leaves town. You go into a dark room, you flip on the light, what happens? The darkness runs. It is not possible for darkness and light to have communion unless, hear me carefully, I got your attention. Unless something changes with the light. Fellowship means partnership. Think of a business partnership. I have always, well, just kind of wanted to open a coffee shop. I like coffee. I love coffee. If I was going to have a business partner, I'm not going to have a business partner that hates coffee. Are you with me? I am not going to be in a partnership with a man or anybody that hates coffee. He's got to love coffee. Or, I guess, he needs to love profit. Right? He could love a profit. You know, if you want to sell coffee, if you're just selling it free, you're not going to do that very long. The point is, you have to love something that you're together on. How can light have fellowship with dark people? Who are in the darkness. Because the light now loves the darkness. Or they cannot get along, beloved. It's not possible. It's like two businessmen, you know. I don't want to sell coffee anymore. I don't like coffee. We're parting ways. We can't have communion. We can't have concord. We can't have agreement. We can't have fellowship. All the words that Paul uses. You know what's happening at Corinth? They're having fellowship with idols and with false prophets. You know why? They're going back to loving the darkness. The only possible way for light and darkness to mix is for the people of the light to step out of the Lord, to turn the light off, and the light no longer does the work of reproving because now we love the same coffee that they love. Or you wouldn't be accepted. They wouldn't even like you. What's Paul saying to us? Don't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't be partakers with them. In the ultimate reason, why? Because you will not have an inheritance in heaven. If you go to the darkness and stay there, you'll be under the wrath of God. Is that not Paul's argument as he pleads with us? Because you will be what you are. Right? 
You will ultimately live out your identity and who you are. All right, let's look at the work for a minute. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them because, here's one reason, it is even a shame to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Now, what's Paul saying here? Well, he just said the words, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. So it doesn't mean you can't say, if you're going to expose, you've got to talk about the thing that needs to be exposed. No, we don't need to get on social media and get into details of what they do in secret. It's not necessary to expose darkness, to get into all the details, and to bring up all these things of what people are doing in darkness. So Paul is probably saying here, if it's even a shame, it's certainly a shame to have fellowship with them. And then he's telling those who are walking in the light in the church, they need to expose those who are in the darkness in the church. This is not just about unbelievers. He said, let this not be once named among you, because now it was being named. Here and at the church at Corinth, it was being named. Fornication. And they were puffed up about it. So Paul is calling those who are walking in the light to even expose those around them that are walking in darkness. Don't have fellowship with that. It's a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in darkness or in secret. Verse 13 in transition. But all things that are reproved or made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. It is light. The work of reproving is explained even more in verse 13. And so what does this mean? This is not a real simple verse, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because there are two passive verbs, and those are made manifest and whatsoever doth make manifest. So let me give you an illustration of how this would be worked out. Suppose there's a criminal that's walking through your front yard in the middle of darkness And you've got a floodlight on the side of the house. Well, the criminal trips the sensor and the light shines. He's exposed. All right, that fits verse 13a. But all things that are being exposed, or that are approved, are being exposed, that's passive, by the light. So the floodlight is exposing the criminal who's passive in the exposure. He just looks up at the light. He is caught. He's exposed. It's a passive verb. But here's the next one that is a challenge. Verse 13. For whatsoever is being exposed is light. So back to our illustration. The criminal now is passive and being exposed. He becomes light. That's a challenge. Unless we understand light now is transformative. The aim of of letting the light do its work is not just to shame people. You're just going to talk about this and just shame them. No, it's transformation. The criminal now takes off the mask and he becomes light. Now, is there anything in our context that's close to that? Yes. Verse 8. You were sometimes darkness. You were the criminal with the mask on. But now you are light. 
Not you're in the light. You are light in the Lord. You were exposed and you became light. This is why he said, verse 14, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Now, for the Christian to be transformative, this can go in two directions. And I admit, I'm going to give you both. They're not both right. It's only one or the other, but I'm not sure. Verse 14 can be talking about the unbeliever dead in sin or the believer who's sleepwalking. It's not so easy from the context to just be absolutely sure which it is. Now, both are not, both are okay because they're not heretical. But I just want to be open when you say both can't be true. That's not the way the Bible works. Say, well, it can be this, it can be that. No, God has one meaning here that can be applied many different ways. And I'm just telling you, here's the possible two. It's one or the other, right? As an unbeliever. How would you expose an unbeliever? You'd say, wake up. Believe the gospel. Repent. Turn to Christ. For which you would say, well, they can't rise from the dead. You know? Are you saying, yeah, get yourself up from the dead and Christ will give you light? No. Ephesians 2, we're dead in trespasses and in sins. Right? But God who's rich in mercy... He quickens us. But what's the pattern of being made alive in Christ in the Bible? And when Paul talked to unbelievers and said, believe, was he not saying, wake up from the dead? Is that not what has to happen? Every time you tell a believer to repent and believe, or an unbeliever, you're saying, wake up, arise from the dead. That's what you're saying, because that's what has to happen. Now the word and here is not saying and when you do that, this will happen. It's saying Christ is the one that shines. Paul knew that about his own ministry. In Acts chapter 26, he told King Agrippa that when Christ appeared to him, he told him he would send him to the Gentiles. To do what? To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they would receive the forgiveness of sins and be sanctified, which is by faith in Christ. In other words, that they would be saved. Paul can't open people's eyes. But when Paul's preaching, he says, open your eyes. Turn from the darkness. Turn to the light. What happens? Christ shines when Paul is speaking. He did that to Lydia. I don't know what he's saying, but let's just assume he's saying, wake up, Lydia, you're a Jew. This is the Messiah. Rise up. Believe in Christ. God opened her heart. She believed. That's the pattern of the Bible. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, For we preach Christ Jesus, the Lord, and not ourselves, but ourselves your servants for Christ's sake. Why does Paul preach Jesus and not himself? Well, he answers the question in verse 6. Because God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul's preaching his preaching. He knows he can say all day, wake up, rise up, believe. And nothing happens. But he stays with the message because he knows when he's preaching, God comes in the back door, pow, awakens. 
And then you believe. Right? So if he's talking about unbelievers, then we should be exposing unbelievers by telling them the gospel, to believe, to repent, to turn from sin, to turn to the light, to turn from the power of darkness and turn to the power of light, the power of God in Christ, knowing all the while, if there's going to be an awakening, Christ will raise them from the dead. See, we're not hyper-Calvinists, beloved. Are we to suppose then we have to see people sort of awake before we can say anything to them? Because we can't tell them to raise up from the dead. We can't tell them to believe because they can't. That is not what we find in the Bible. That's not what Paul did. That's not his pattern. That's not the pattern of the apostles. Sometimes people believe, well, we can't say to anybody anything until we can see some fruit. Well, they don't have any fruit until they believe. <laughs> so what are you seeing? No, we can tell unbelievers, repent, awaken, and come to the light. And if they never do, we know why. And if they do, Jesus turned the light on. And now that which is exposed is light. That's the meaning, or one possible. The second one is the believer. If Paul is addressing those that have turned into the darkness who are believers, and he is addressing those in this context... Let it not be once named because, in fact, just like Corinth, it's being named. So he's telling those that are walking in the light with Christ not to have fellowship even with those that are in the church who are in darkness, but what? Expose them for transforming purposes. Not condemn them, not just want to shame them. We want them to awake. So we say, awake thou that sleepest. Whatever words we use, we're, we're, we're pleading with them to awake and come back into the light. You know, the most dangerous thing is sleepwalking, isn't it? Why is that dangerous? First of all, you don't know you're sleepwalking. Secondly, you can talk. You walk around. You can communicate. You ever seen anybody sleepwalking and have a conversation with you? You can go to church every Sunday and be sleepwalking. There's no fruit there. That's the most dangerous kind. So what are we saying to one another? Wake up. You know, when someone's asleep, they look dead. You ever seen that cute little baby in the crib? And you're trying to look for breath, movement, of the, and you don't see anything. You just kind of shake the crib and they cry. Oh, okay. He's alive. So, when we let the light do its work, the work that God is doing through us, whether it's the unbeliever, whether it's the believer, is calling on men and women to wake up, come back to the light, or come into the light. And even coming back is a work of grace, isn't it? It's a work of grace. It's all crowned with grace. Beloved, are you sleepwalking? How do you know you will not walk in your sleep right off the end of the cliff with no inheritance and under the wrath of God? Only when you awaken to Christ as source, satisfier, and the fruit of assurance is born in your life in some degree. Although we're sinners, we still need a Savior. If you can do this fruit thing long, you don't need Jesus, right? We need Him. So let your light shine in the Lord. Keep the light on, proving what is acceptable. Let us look for ways and seasons and occasions to be useful in righteousness and truth, upright behavior.
And let us let the light that God has put in us do its work. And what did Paul say? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Paul has a light inside. We have this treasure in clay pots so that the excellency of the power may not be in Paul's words, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel is the power of God who uses His word to transform the lives of sinners. May we be light in the Lord. Let's pray.